0: Another day, another recording, and another scintillating episode of Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, ASCO 2023. I'm Michael, that's Josh, and we are talking colorectal cancer today. Lots of interesting stuff, and as we did with our lung cancer episode yesterday, there is a plenary study that we will not talk about today, that that is the PROSPECT trial. We feel that uh, it, like the other two plenary presentations, is worth their own episode. So we will come back to that one later, but that does not mean that there's not much to talk about. Josh, how are you doing today? I'm gunning
1: for this episode. Colorectal is that space that needs an angel.
0: A colorectal angel. There's a slightly weird visual image. Josh, (laughs) why don't you, before we uh, explore that image further, why don't you... uh, jump right into the DESTINY CRC-O2 study.
1: I will. So DESTINY is part of the DESTINY gang. It's trastuzumab-deruxtacan. You might have heard this in the breast cancer space. With HER2 overexpression or amplified metastatic colorectal cancer. This was the primary results from the Phase 2 DESTINY CRC-O2 study. What we know is that HER2 positive patients represent about 2 to 3% of all metastatic colorectal patients. They're resistant to EGFR-targeted therapy, and there's been ongoing research. Trastuzumab and the classical agents don't work effectively. Trastuzumab, deruxtecan is an antibody drug conjugate which uses IgG1 and topoisomerase 1 inhibitors. So essentially, it's got that payload of chemo. It's very directed. It's very potent. They've defined HER2 in this case as 3+, plus or HER2-ish amplified, and they tried two different dosings. This trial was not powered to compare the two dosings when it comes to efficacy. So it was randomized, blinded, two-stage, two-arm, multi-center, global phase two trial. They were HER2-positive, RAS wild-type or mutant, and BRAF wild-type. They had to be unresectable, recurrent, or metastatic with colorectal cancer, and they were stratified according to a number of things. ARM1 was a lower dose of TDXD, or trastuzumab deruxtecan, and ARM2 was the higher dose. They then added a further 42 patients as a stage 2 in ARM2. I'm not really sure why, but that was the study design. And they weren't randomized. They were just given the higher dose. Primary endpoints included objective response rate and secondary endpoints, duration of response, progression-free survival, overall survival, and safety. So 85% of patients were 3-plus on HER2-IHC and RAS wild type was predominant. Duration of response showed 8.5 months with stage one, so that was the lower dose of TDXD, and 4.6 months stage two at the lower dose TDXD. Overall combined, it was about 5.5 months, which is comparable to the higher dosing of TDXD. Medium progression-free survival was 5.8 months in the lower dose and 5.5 months in the higher dose. And the median overall survival was 13.4 months in the lower dose and not reached in the higher dose, but there was limited follow-up, which is the rationale for why it wasn't reached. Looking at the IHC3+, objective response rate was 46.9% versus 5.6%. Again, when you look at that, you can tell the reason is there's very low numbers in the forest plot and the RAS wild type is more responsive than the mutant variant it appears that TDXD works irrespective of the side of the colon that is being treated. From a safety analysis, they did have grade 3 adverse events in 49% of the lower dose and 59% of the higher dose, so a 10% difference with the dosing difference. Common toxicities of greater than 20% included nausea and bone marrow suppression, and as expected, was higher in the higher dose. 12.8% 12.8% of cases in the higher dose and 8.4% of cases in the lower dose stopped treatment. From an outcome perspective, what we saw was that there was promising anti-tumor activity observed in the RAS mutant and RAS wild type in both dosings. There was a high objective response rate at the 5.4 dose at 37.8% and lower in the higher dose at 27.5%. What is the result of the study, Michael? And what it's telling us is that they found the optimal dose for TDXD in HER2-positive metastatic colorectal cancer. The next part of what they need to do is create a phase 3 trial, the standard of care therapy, to actually see how it responds and then move it up the chain of how efficacious this is because these are previously treated patients, I believe.
0: I'm sure it will end up being very efficacious if previous members of the destiny gang as you called it are any indication. They're ready for another standing ovation at ASCO and another massive jump in their share price.
1: Michael, great great first study out the gate. Why don't we why don't you tell us about the Neocol trial, which is another colorectal
0: trial? Absolutely. It's another colorectal trial and It's another neoadjuvant trial. We've said multiple times on this show that oncology treatment as a whole is really moving to the neoadjuvant space. If we can give treatment before surgery, then that will not only in many cases improve outcomes, but it will potentially increase the number of people who are amenable to curable surgery. Neocol was a phase 3 randomized trial that compared the efficacy of neoadjuvant chemotherapy and standard treatment in patients with locally advanced colon cancer. It's important to note in this study that MMR and circulating tumor DNA were not biomarkers and not included prospectively. The reason this is important is because there's a growing body of evidence for immunotherapy in the neoadjuvant setting for patients with deficient MMR proteins. So why should we care? The question remains that if you have a patient, and as we'll see, a lot of these patients are very high risk, but if you have a patient who has early-stage colorectal cancer, which is picked up much more frequently than, for example, early-stage lung cancer, will neoadjuvant chemo improve recurrence rates, minimise adverse events, and most importantly, improve overall survival? Neoadjuvant therapy, the rationale behind it, as we've said, is it's known to eliminate distant micrometastases, minimize tumor size, and as, as therapy is given before surgery, it tends to be better tolerated. And it might even reduce the need for adjuvant therapy, as well as the total burden of chemotherapy. So we might be able to reduce the number of cycles that we can give. So as mentioned, this was a randomized phase three trial of patients with newly diagnosed colon cancer. They had to have T4 or T3 with an extension beyond five millimeters. They could be any nodal status and they had to be free of distant metastases. So T4 patients, we know from the ideas uh, cohort that patients with T4 disease are of the highest risk, even if they don't have any nodes. So these are high risk patients. The adjuvant Treatment or lack thereof was based on the post operative pathology. The exclusion criteria were distant metastases and and other malignancies. It's a fairly uh, standard study design. So they had 250 patients and they were randomized one to one to upfront surgery or neoadjuvant chemo. Neoadjuvant chemo took the form of three cycles of CAPOX, that's CAPE plus oxaliplatin, or four cycles of Folfox, which is five fluorouracil and oxaliplatin. Adjuvant chemo was not mandatory. As mentioned, it was based on the post-operative setting. The amount of adjuvant therapy was calculated as the standard total amount of chemotherapy minus the amount of chemotherapy that had been given in the neoadjuvant setting. So you're giving less adjuvant chemo given that patients have already received treatment pre-surgery. The primary endpoint was disease-free survival, with secondary endpoints being quality of life. 99% of patients had surgery within seven days of randomization to arm A, and 98% of patients had surgery within 74 days in arm B. Arm B had more laparoscopic as opposed to open surgeries. We know that patients with T4 disease frequently present with obstruction, so fewer laparotomies, fewer open surgeries, often Obviously means fewer surgical complications. Surgery was deemed to be a safe procedure after neoadjuvant chemotherapy. 3% of patients had an ileus compared to 8% in the adjuvant setting. Obviously, we take every precaution to minimize the risk of neutropenia, sepsis, that sort of thing, and this is further evidence that surgery after chemotherapy is something that is very doable. So, in terms of the results, we're talking about pathology here, and unfortunately, not to give the entire game away, but the results are fairly disappointing. So tumour downsizing after neoadjuvant chemotherapy occurred in a very small proportion of patients. Only 3% had a complete pathological response, with a total of 10% having a T-stage of 2 or lower. More patients in arm um, B did have a lack of lymph node spread as an indicator of downstaging, so N equals zero, 59% versus 48% in arm A. 73% of patients in arm A, that's a surgery up front arm, needed adjuvant chemotherapy, whereas 59% of patients needed adjuvant chemotherapy in arm B with a p-value of 0.03. The primary endpoint demonstrated no difference in disease-free survival, and this was not statistically significant with a p-value of 094 in terms of overall survival, again, equal outcomes with no difference on the Kaplan-Meyer curve. So in the words of a, an old boss of mine, you definitely could not drive a truck through the gap. So in conclusion, neocol, we're a bit unsure about whether it was specifically designed as a non-inferiority study, but it does appear that there, the author's approach to basically splitting a standard course of chemotherapy in neo-adjuvant and adjuvant is not significantly different to the current standard way, which is clustering all of the chemotherapy after surgery. Unfortunately, neoadjuvant chemotherapy is not superior, which is sort of what we've come to expect with this approach um, in the areas of disease-free and overall survival. The sequence of surgery and chemotherapy, therefore, is very much up for debate. Now, obviously, you're going to have patients who are immediate surgical candidates. They're otherwise fit, they're young, and they're presenting in a, in a in a crisis of some description, the most common being an acute bowel obstruction. However, if you catch these early, say on uh, routine colonoscopies or, or symptomatic colonoscopies, you may actually be able to give them neoadjuvant chemotherapy, which reduces the Surgical complications reduces the potential need for laparotomy, and it reduces the need for adjuvant chemotherapy, or the likelihood we should say of the need of adjuvant chemotherapy. So this could be viewed if you're putting a positive spin on it. It could be viewed not as necessarily a negative study, but as a potential study that may indicate a future direction of treatment de-escalation. The risk of the chemotherapy toxicity is another point. We know that, and I saw a, a patient in clinic just last week who had had adjuvant Folfox and was stuck with lifelong peripheral neuropathy. We've talked about that in a previous Snacks episode. Again, MMR and circulating tumor DNA weren't included, and I think that does, or, or that may potentially, provide a little bit more nuance. You might be more willing to uh, extend chemotherapy, for example, uh, in patients with circulating tumor DNA, you could use that as a marker post-op to uh, measure potentially the success of neoadjuvant therapy. Lots of potential spin-offs, but it is an interesting idea. The
1: Neocol trial is an interesting concept because de-escalation is the flavor. And as you so eloquently put, peripheral neuropathy can lead to lots of problems. And if, even if you can just dose re, dose reduce it or... Get rid of some treatment rather than spending six months with us or three months,
0: depending sort of how high risk they are. It's something to consider. Josh, we've got one more study that we need to look at. We're moving down the alimentary tract, as we like to say, and it's a study, an update from a study that we've talked about previously, and that is PRODIGE. Let's move on to PRODIGE twenty-three. This is a seven-year
1: update looking at total neoadjuvant therapy with with modified volfirinox versus perioperative chemoradiation in patients with locally advanced rectal cancer. What do we know? We know the three-year update already. We know it's a safe regimen. We know that the quality of life was high in the total near um, the TNT arm, so total near the adjuvant therapy arm, and erectile dysfunction rates were lower. So we already know some of these results. The trial design was one-to-one randomized where you got radiotherapy with Cape for seven weeks, followed by total mesenteric excision, then followed by modified Folfox for 12 cycles or Cape for eight cycles. The other arm, which is the arm we're interested in, was modified Folfirinox first for six cycles, then you had the radiotherapy and the Cape cytobine for the seven weeks, then you had the excision, and then you had more Folfox afterwards. There was no bolus fluorouracil, if you're wondering what the modification was, and a total of six months of chemo was given either way. Eligibility criteria, good ECOG status, had to have an adenocarcinoma in the rectum, MRI had to be staged T3, T4, NNE, and M0. No prior radiotherapy, no prior chemotherapy. So there were 461 patients, and median follow-up was a whopping 82.2 months. Untreated, 5 in the TNT arm because metastatic diagnosis and 3 in the control, not sure why. Demographics were similar and most patients had low to mid-rectal cancer. Let's go to the results. The cumulative incidence of local recurrence rates for TNT at 5 years was 4.7% and at 7 years was 5.3%. Looking at standard of care, which was not the Folfirinox arm, Local recurrence was 6.4% at five years and 8.1% at seven years. Looking at the cumulative incidence of metastatic cancer occurrence, Michael, total neoadjuvant therapy for metastatic recurrence at five years was 18%, and at seven years was 20%. Comparing that to the seven years of standard of care, it was 27.7%. So 38% of patients were alive at the time of cutoff analysis, Let's go into the disease-free survival. The first event that they found, so in the TNT arm, 72 patients had an event, so cancer, something else happened, whereas standard of care was 83. Metastases, we saw 52% in the TNT arm and 65% in the standard of care arm. Looking at local regional relapse, slightly higher in the TNT versus standard of care and loco regional relapse with metastases no patients in the TNT arm and 2.4% of patients in the standard of care arm death was higher in the TNT versus 4.8% in the standard of care and a secondary cancer was also much higher in the TNT arm the number of deaths when you look at the when you compare the two it was 18.2% in TNT versus 24.4% in the standard of care and definitive stoma was high in the standard of care arm. Let's move to those final DFS results because I think that's where the meat is actually going to be. So the DFS at seven years was 67.6% in the TNT arm and 62.5% in the standard of care arm, and the RMST which stands for a restricted mean survival time, and that's the calculation they've used, was an extra 5.74 months benefiting the TNT arm with a statistically significant p-value. So out of everything I've said, the only thing you need to remember is that disease-free survival was significant in the TNT arm. All those other numbers I mentioned all get taken into account when you're looking at this. Metastasy free survival, the RMST, which is again what we work at, was 7.1 months favoring the TNT arm, again statistically significant, and cancer-specific survival, so this is rectal cancer-specific survival, at a 3.84-month benefit favoring the TNT arm, and it was not statistically significant, but was very, very close at point zero five one. So in Prodige 23, there was no reduction in survival after distant failure in the TNT arm, with immediate overall survival being 44 months in the Porphyronox arm and 39.4 months in the standard of care arm. When we look at the overall survival, moving on to overall survival rather than cancer-specific survival, there was benefit with induction chemo, and this was significant with an RMST of 4.37. So what conclusion can we take from what is a bit of a confusing trial, lots of names, lots of numbers, lots of variables, and it's this. Progression-free survival and overall survival was better in the modified for Firinox arm before chemoradiotherapy. Disease-free survival and metastasis-free survival was also durable after that five-year mark, and their safety profile remains unchanged and no increase in local recurrence. So what it's saying, and is this practice changing? Well, no, because we're already doing it in a select population. It should be considered one of the best options for care for locally advanced rectal cancer, as it's given evidence to show increased
0: survival in this population. Josh, that was an excellent summary of what is a very confusing study and a very controversial one at that I know there are places where practitioners use slight, slightly different uh, variations on Prodige or or use the study found in the Oprah approach, which was looking specifically at organ preservation. But I think this really does support the use of modified Fulfirinox in the total neoadjuvant therapy space. And it is good for us to actually see that crystallised because there was always a little bit of, of doubt as to whether Yes, there was a a DFS benefit. There was a distant metastasis-free survival benefit. We've known that for a long time. But there was always a question about whether that would actually translate into an overall survival benefit. So it's nice to see that.
1: It's nice to see that when we have this conversation about how to treat rectal cancer, you can say the evidence supports this regimen rather than we think it supports this regimen.
0: Yes, we don't like having ambiguity, even though there is so much in Mm -hmm. oncology. And I don't think that'll ever change. Nope. We are not done yet. We're probably barely halfway through our stream of ASCO-related episodes, so I hope you're not sick of us because we're not quite sick of doing it just yet. There's plenty of evidence to talk about, and our next episode, dropping tomorrow, will be on genitourinary cancers. A lot on bladder on renal cell cancer, and a lot, as always, on prostate. So we hope to see you then. See you then, Michael, because you and I are going to be here. We're going to be here for a long time. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonk.com. That's inquisitiveonk.com.